0: Welcome this morning. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor. And uh, as has already been discussed so far, we are in week two of a new series called Say What? And we're discussing, or rather maybe we could say debunking some common misunderstandings, uh, misperceptions, misconceptions within the Christian world. And so if you weren't here last week, let me catch you up just a little bit so you kind of understand Um, What the purpose of this series is for last week um, We debunked the common Christian teaching or saying that God will never give me more than I can handle And as we walked through the Bible what we discovered was actually what the Bible teaches Is that God will never allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle But when it comes to life circumstances, he will most certainly allow us to endure more than we can handle but not because he's mean, but because he wants us to learn to rely on him. And so as we were walking through the New Testament and walking through the life of some individuals, particularly a guy named Paul, um, he said that very thing um, in discussing some of his terrible life circumstances. He said that we he felt like he was despaired of life, that he had been given the death sentence because things were so bad. And uh, But he said this was all so that I would rely not on my own strength, but rely on God. And so God wants us to learn to rely on Him because He's the only one who can come through and has the power and the authority to change these terrible life circumstances that we find ourselves in sometimes. We talked about how actually the teaching that God will never give you more than you can handle um, is actually um, not helpful when you're going through more than you can handle. Because then you begin to question God and whether He's there or paying attention or able to do what He said He can do. And when we come from a proper perspective, we understand that when we endure more than we can handle, that in fact God is still there and He still cares because He's the one who wants us to learn to rely on Him. And so that was what we talked about last week. Um, And now we're going to shift gears and we're going to talk about a new common Christian misunderstanding or misconception that I think we've all dealt with. Now, before we really tackle it and jump in, um, I want to ask just kind of a quick survey. Um, how w- Somebody shout out what you think is the most famous, well-known Bible verse there is. John 3.16. That's the uniform answer. It's always been that answer, and it has always been true for a very, very long time, especially in this country, John 3.16 has been the most well-known verse of Scripture. As a matter of fact, for most people, it's the only known um, verse of Scripture. And let me tell you about something that happened very, very interesting in January of 2009. Everybody knows Tim Tebow, right? Even those who aren't Broncos fans, not to point anyone out in this room. Um, all right, everybody, at least, even if you don't like football... You know who Tim Tebow is. Well, in the BCS National Championship game in January of 2009, this is what Tim Tebow looked like. Now, after this year, the NCAA passed a new law, a new rule. They dubbed it, well, the media dubbed it the Tim Tebow rule. That wasn't what the NCAA governing body called it, but it banned any writing on your eye black. Which Tim Tebow was famous for doing, and in the 2009 national championship game, as you can see from this picture, this is right after they won. the, the Florida Gators won the national championship that year. Uh, on his eye black, it says John 3:16, and the Wall Street, uh, excuse me, the LA Times on Mon- uh, Monday morning. Or I guess it would have been Tuesday morning because the game was on Monday night. On Tuesday morning, ran a story that John 3.16 had been Googled 92 million times that night, which got a lot of people asking the question, why did 92 million people need to Google it? Because up until that point, everyone assumed everybody knows John 3.16, or at least is familiar with it enough to know generally what it says, even if you couldn't quote it word for word. And so that prompted a lot of studies into... um, Well, what does our culture know about John 3.16? And what does our culture know about the Bible? And so there were a lot of studies that started going on. And then Tim Tebow moves into the NFL. Now, it was already banned um, for putting any kind of writing on your eye black when when Tim Tebow arrived into the NFL. Uh, But that doesn't stop the media from going crazy, right? It doesn't stop them from jumping on... Um, Just crazy circumstances and stories. Uh, Does anybody remember when Tebow was our quarterback? Remember that year in 2012? Does anybody remember uh, the playoff game that we won when Tebow was the quarterback? The crazy one. We were playing the Steelers, and it was overtime. Do you remember he throws like a 90-something yard pass, an 80-yard something pass to Marius Thomas for a touchdown touchdown? In overtime, do you remember that whole craziness? And that's the peak of the Tebow mania. Everybody was going crazy. Well, Tim Tebow couldn't write John 316 on his eye black anymore. But let me read you some stats from that game that got the media going crazy. Do you know how many total passing yards that, um, that he had this game? Tim Tebow, 316. Do you know what his average yards per game were? It's 31.6. It was a NFL record. Do you know what the CBS ratings for this game was? 31.6. Um, do you know when the only interception of the entire game came? Came in the second quarter by the opposing team's quarterback. Do you know what the down and distance was? It was third down, 16 yards to go. And Tebow's stats through three quarters, he was three for 16. So, he didn't write 316 on anything, but you can imagine the media went crazy with this. And over the next 24 hours, do you know what happened? This time, 98 million people Googled John 316. It was never written anywhere, but uh, the media was going crazy over all of these stats that ended up turning into this 316 Number and so the studies continued. What is the most well-known scripture out there? If it's no longer John three sixteen, and what many of these studies discovered is, though, at, when it came to non Christians, virtually nobody could give the actual Bible reference. They could quote this particular scripture, um, which which happens to be probably the most well-known, easily quoted scripture verse. Um, In our culture today, and it's Matthew 7-1, and it says this, Judge not that you be not judged. Or maybe you know it in a little different format, depending on what version of the Bible you're used to. And so within our culture now, um, this is the most well-known verse of Scripture among all people, especially those who who would not call themselves followers of Christ. Um, And unfortunately, I think it's a bad reflection on how people feel towards Christianity and and why it was that they moved from knowing and understanding John 3.16, which is a summary of all that we believe in and hope for, uh, moving towards this passage, which is a defense mechanism um, to push back against people uh, when you feel judged. And so now the most well-known scripture um, in our culture is Usually, you know, they'll quote it something like, do not judge or you will be judged. It's usually how people quote it. And so that begs the question, is it true that we shouldn't judge others? Is it true that Christians shouldn't be judging other people? Because this scripture is often used as a defense, both by non-Christians and Christians alike, um, as a defense mechanism that you can't judge me. So what is it that the Bible teaches? Is this the summary of everything the Bible has to say? And I want us to look together at what the Bible has to say about judging uh, in relation to what it is that we do as followers of Christ, as Christians. How are we supposed to handle this really delicate and challenging topic? And so I think to start, rather than just looking at Matthew 7, 1, maybe we should look at the, the whole paragraph where Matthew 7, 1 is found. So we're going to look at Matthew 7, Verses 1 through 5, and we're just going to read it together and kind of look at a few things together. And so it says this in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. Just in case you're curious, um, Matthew 7 is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which we spent eight weeks talking about the Beatitudes, which was the introduction to that sermon. And so this is right here in the middle of that message. And so it says this Jesus says this Judge not that you Be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounced, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the log of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so there's this idea um, that we're all familiar with. And if we were all honest, we've probably all felt before. It's this idea of like, why do you notice the splinter in me when you have a telephone pole coming out of your face? Is the whole idea that Jesus is saying here, how can you notice the speck in my eye when you have a log in yours? And I think we've all felt that before. Um, Maybe we felt unfairly judged. And have a tendency to go, who are you to look at me when I can clearly see what you're struggling with? And often is used as a defense mechanism. And that is certainly true. And Jesus makes it very clear that we should worry about ourselves long before we worry about somebody else. But here's what this passage does not do. This passage does not uh, speak against all forms of judgment. Notice what verse 5 says. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then what he says. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what Jesus is concerned here with is not at all judging, saying you can never look at somebody else. You can never even attempt to notice the speck in somebody else's life of where they're wrong or where they're mistaken or where they're struggling. What he says is you don't have the authority or the right to step in and challenge someone else when you're not first dealing with your own. What's wrong is for you to forget about yourself and only be concerned about other people. But what he says is once you are worried about yourself first, you've now put yourself in a place where you can help others. It's after you look at yourself first that you're then able to look at someone else. And so it's not a condemnation of all judging, but rather a hypocritical judge. One that loves to point out other people's mistakes without any concern For their own. Um, You know, the Broncos are going to play here soon. Um, Many of us love sports. Maybe not everyone in here. But we can all understand the value of Peyton Manning. Right? We all understand how good he is, how much he means to the Broncos. And at least, even if you don't enjoy watching football, you can enjoy uh, his skills and his talent and what he brings to the table. You know, Referees are necessary for the game. Does anybody in here have a favorite referee? Like a poster? You got a poster of a referee? You don't have a poster? Right? No. That's that's kind of what Jesus is talking about. It's like, what, what he's not speaking against is this idea of ever calling out somebody else's stuff. But what he is saying is, what we don't need is referees who run around in life Blowing the whistle at every single other person without ever considering their own mistakes. And so it's not a condemnation of all judging, but of hypocritical judging. There's another passage I want us to look at. and We're going to look at a number of them together today. Because we really want to make sure that we walk away with a proper perspective of what the Bible does teach. And what we're going to do after looking at several of these scriptures, we're going to kind of summarize it all together. Um, to kind of have some takeaways for the day. So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. And this is Paul writing to a young pastor. Um, and he says this, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, do nothing, from partiality. I think there's several things that are worth our attention here. Um, first of all, um, you'll notice in chapter, I mean, verse 19, where he says, do not admit a charge against an elder. Um, that word elder is not really referring to older people. It's actually referring to a office within the church. Um, really today, most churches use the term pastor in the role of an elder um, or maybe they'll use them interchangeably, or there might be some slight differences, but an elder is a leader within the church who has the charge of maintaining doctrine and teaching the people uh, and, and serving the church in a leadership role. And so um, I, I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, um, public rebuke is very serious and should not be taken lightly. Publicly rebuking someone, a, a rebuke is, is a fancy word for... Um, correcting behavior. So publicly correcting someone is very serious and should never be taken lightly. Notice here, Paul says, you shouldn't bring a charge against, here he's talking about a church leader. I think this could apply to fellow Christians um, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. He says, listen, you should never do it publicly unless there are multiple people who understand what's going on and have witnessed it there should never be a public correction if just it's one person's opinion or point of view and then he says as for those who persist in sin not anybody who sins not anyone who make a, makes a mistake even if three people witness a mistake he doesn't say you call them out or correct them publicly he says those who persist and sin, Those who refuse to acknowledge it, those who refuse to correct it, that's when you correct them publicly for the advantage of everybody so that all of the church can learn from someone else's mistake and, and be encouraged, challenged, um, pushed into uh, not making the same mistakes. And I think we could all agree that this kind of correction even when there's multiple witnesses, even when it's determined it's just persistent sin that they refuse to acknowledge, refuse to repent from, uh, requires some level of judgment. It would be impossible to recognize persistent sin in someone without making a judgment call. It would be impossible to gather two or three witnesses before you were to take a church leader or someone uh, within the church publicly to correct their persistent sin. There would have to be a judgment call. This, don't look at my life and I won't look at yours. That mentality could never work in this environment. But what's the big warning in this passage? In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, go on down there towards the end to keep these rules without prejudging. The big warning here is about prejudging, not judging uniformly, across the board, any kind of judging. The big warning here is don't prejudge until you know the facts, until you know the full story, until you know all of the details. Until you know it all, you don't know enough, especially to correct someone else. So the big warning here is not against judging, it's against prejudging before you really understand the story. And I imagine all of us in here have lived long enough to be on the bad end of prejudging. That someone made a judgment call on you before they knew all the facts, before they knew the big picture, or the full story. Not that that always justifies it. Not that you can always excuse a mistake or sin or a behavior just because nobody else understands the full story. But I think we've probably all been on the bad end of somebody prejudging us before they really understood what it was really all about and that's what paul's speaking against here is making a early judgment call before you understand the facts and he says do nothing from partiality or playing favorites see i won't call this person out because i like them i don't want to ruin our friendship and i'm going to let them slide because they're funny or cool or um, good friends of mine but I don't care too much for this person. They annoy me or I don't even know them well enough to to be worried about that. So I'll feel more comfortable calling these people out for personal preference reasons. And Paul gives a strong warning about that. So next I want us to look at John chapter 7, verse 24. And this one's short and straight to the point. Jesus says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now I think we can all agree here. This verse alone puts to rest the myth that we are not to judge. This idea that Christians shouldn't ever judge, that no one should be allowed to ever judge me, this statement puts it to rest. Jesus doesn't say that we can't ever judge. What he says is you don't judge by appearances. Which is kind of in the same line of what we just read a second ago in, in Timothy. That until you have a proper perspective, you're not ready to To place judgment on a situation or circumstance or behavior or individual. Jesus' warning isn't against judging. It's against kind of like this prejudging or judging by appearances before you know the full story, the big picture. Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 1. And he, talking about Jesus, said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. That is a graphic picture and Jesus obviously means business here. Number three, Verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Again, a couple of things that I think are worthy for us to point out. First of all, the big focus is on who? Yourself. He says, woe to the person through whom temptation comes. And then he says, pay attention to yourselves. How easy is it to look at someone else and their mistakes and their sin or that, that temptation came through them? How easy is it for us to identify that in other people? And Jesus here says, watch yourself. Oh, it's so much easier to put a magnifying glass to someone else than to look in a mirror. But Jesus' warning here is watch yourself. Don't be so consumed with looking at other people that you miss your own errors. Don't be so consumed with with refereeing everyone else and blowing your whistle every time you see someone else make a mistake that you miss the fact that even through you temptation comes because I'm going to tell you it'd be a lot better if you were cast into the sea tied to a rock than to be the one through whom other people are led astray watch yourself the big focus here is not on judging other people it's judging yourself But then at the end of verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Correct him. Correct his behavior. Is that possible to do without some form of judgment? But notice the heart behind the judgment. Notice what's lying underneath the surface. And if he repents, you forgive him. If he sins seven times and seven times he apologizes, you forgive seven times. That heart, notice the heart behind the rebuking. Here's what that heart isn't doing. It's not getting revenge because they pointed out something in your life in the, in the past and now it's your turn to repay the favor. It's also not about trying to prove you're right, trying to prove a point, trying to justify yourself or your own actions, try to harm someone else. The heart behind this is genuine, godly concern for someone else. You're not worried about yourself and if you've been wronged. You correct and you immediately bring forgiveness. And no matter how many times they continue to make the mistake, you continue to give forgiveness because the rebuke, the correction is not about you. It's not about your purity or your righteousness or your authority. It's about the concern for the other individual. And that's how the judgment is supposed to play out. And if you're struggling with wanting to prove you're right, prove you're better, pay someone back, show your authority, then you're not ready to correct someone else. Until you can have this kind of heart behind it. Here's the last scripture I want us to look at today. This is 2 Timothy chapter 4. Again, this is Paul writing to a young pastor. He says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearance and His kingdom. He says this, Preach the word. Now that is the foundation for everything else we're about to read. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. Notice what the foundation is for all the actions that Paul is challenging Timothy to take. The foundation underneath it all preach the word. Everything we do as believers has to be founded on God's truth. And that includes judgment. That includes correction. All of it has to be founded on God's word. And so, right after he says, preach the word, he says, be ready in season and out of season. He says this, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And those are kind of big words that we don't really use in everyday life and maybe we could say it like this. On that rebuke, we've already kind of covered that before. Um, it's this idea of correcting errant behavior. Uh, if you go back, reprove, it's instructing an intellectual error. So maybe somebody believes something that's a little off. This is correcting their thinking. Rebuking is correcting their behavior. And then exhorting is just an encouragement. An encouragement to live um, up to God's standard. An encouragement that you can do it. You can make the correction. You can be all that God has called you to be. You can do the difficult things to be there as as an encouragement. And then he says, with complete patience and teaching. With complete patience. This is again the idea of keeping somebody else's best in mind. Because when the judgment is about you proving your right, exerting your authority, you want results now. You want changed behavior now. You want them to feel guilty about what they've done now. But when you're concerned about somebody else, and that's your heart, then there's patience. Because you're correcting and judging, not for yourself, but for their benefit. And you're willing to walk alongside them and wait patiently and work with them and encourage them, exhort them. He says there, as long as it takes. Because it's about helping others to be all that God's called them to be and created them to be. And then he says, with complete patience and teaching. Teaching-based teaching based On the Word of God. Because any judgment that we do, any correction that we give, has to be founded on God's truth, not our opinion. Not on our opinion about what's best, or smartest, or easiest, or simplest, or most efficient, or ideal, but on God's truth about what matters most. And there's plenty of times our opinions will differ from someone else. But the correction happens when we step in because somebody's varied away from God's truth and what He teaches in His Word. And everything we do, including judging and correction, has to be founded on God's truth. And so let's kind of summarize some of the things that we just talked about, some of those scriptures that we looked at, um, just to bring it all together about how it is is—is it that we're supposed to approach judgment and... Um, now that we know that the Bible doesn't actually teach, we should never judge. Number one, it should be done with integrity, meaning it shouldn't be done hypocritically. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be perfect before you're in a position to, to correct someone else. Because none of us will ever be perfect. Not on this side of heaven. But it does mean that we have to watch ourselves first. That we should be ready to see errors in our own life and ready to correct them before we're ever ready to correct someone else. And so until you have that attitude and that mindset and that willingness, you're not ready to judge anyone or correct anyone. Number two, done with right perspective. This idea of prejudging or judging by appearances like Jesus said. We all have felt maybe prejudged at times we all need to understand that long before we judge and correct someone, we need to understand the true story. We need to understand the bigger picture. We need to be in a place so that when we do correct someone, it's done with love and it's done accurately. Because it doesn't benefit someone else to be corrected for a mistake they're not even making. And how many times when we understand the true perspective on on a life circumstance? How many more times is it harder to judge someone? Because you start thinking about putting yourself in that position. What if you were going through those circumstances? Not that sin doesn't need to be corrected, but it changes our approach. It changes our heart. It changes our perspective. Done with integrity. Done with right perspective. Number three, done with godly. uh, That says integrity. Um, that's supposed to say godly concern. Um, done with godly concern. When we judge and correct someone, it's not about us, it's about them. It's about loving them enough to want to help them. I love my children too much to play with fire, especially unsupervised. You know, if you're at a camping trip, there's a certain level that happens, right? I love my kids too much to leave a hot oven door open and just see what happens. I love my kids too much to, to just let them run out into the street or a busy parking lot without saying something, without running and grabbing and stopping. I don't correct my children just because I have, I'm on a power trip. I don't correct my children because uh, I think I'm better than them. I don't correct my children because I'm trying to prove a point or make them feel guilty. I correct my children because I love them. Because I want what's best for them. Because I want them to be safe. Because I want them to w- learn lessons about how the world works so they can be and live on their own one day. I correct my kids because I love them. And when we can correct a fellow Christian, it has to be from a godly concern because we love them, because we're worried about them. And if we really are worried about them, then we'll stand with them in complete patience. Then we'll take the time to learn the full story without prejudging or judging by appearances. Then we'll approach it in the most helpful, calm, appropriate manner. And then number four, done with patience and truth. Anytime we judge and correct, it has to be done with patience and it has to be founded on God's truth. Not our opinion, not our wishes, not our desires. Because judging and correcting others is part of the formula for growing into Christian maturity. And for others to judge and correct us. How many times does the Bible refer to a church as as God's family? How many times does the Bible use the family relationships as analogies for spiritual truth? Do we not correct our families all the time? Our children, our brothers, our sisters, our spouses? In the same way we correct one another, but out of godly concern founded on God's truth not our opinion done with patience done from a right perspective and done with integrity making sure that we're always judging ourselves first but the judgment that we should spend most of our time thinking about and being worried about Is not judgment from other people, but judgment from the only one who has the ultimate perspective. When we were just reading in Timothy, 2 Timothy, this is what verse 1 said. We read it. I'm going to read it for you again. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, like it or not, we'll all be judged one day. And the judgment we should be most concerned is not about who is judging us in this world, but who is going to be the ultimate and final judge. And how will we stand before Him? Jesus says in Matthew 10.28, I think this, is, this may not be on the screen. He says this, And do not fear those who, kill the, who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We may get a bad judgment from a fellow Christian or someone in our workplace or in our family and feel a little short-changed, feel a little jaded, a little stung. But Jesus says we shouldn't worry about other people. Rather, we should worry about the one who is the ultimate judge. And where we stand with Him. And the Bible teaches that you and I will fail that judgment. On our own, every time we fail. Because we will never be good enough. We will never be perfect enough. We will always be on the bad end of that judgment. Unless. Unless we decide that we're not going to depend on ourselves. Unless, rather than being judged... By how we lived, we choose to be judged based on how Jesus lived. The Bible teaches that for those of us who believe in Him, who have given our lives to Him, who have entrusted Him with our lives and our future, for us, we already know what the pronouncement of the judgment will be. Because on that day, it won't be our mistakes that Jesus, or that God judges us from. But it will be on the righteousness that Jesus has given us. Uh, the great theologian Martin Luther from the 16th century said, called this the great exchange. We exchange our sin for Christ's perfection. We exchange our unrighteousness for Christ's righteousness. So that when that judgment day comes, we're judged as righteous and called the child of God. And if you've never done that, the judgment that we should worry about is not from someone else, but the judgment that God's going to give to us one day. And our focus today shouldn't be on whether someone else is acting appropriately or inappropriately, but rather a judgment on ourselves about where my heart is and where my allegiance lies. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for our time together today. And God, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the truth that you speak to us through your word. and For the perspective we can have walking away today. And God, as strange as it sounds, I thank you for the judgment of other Christians in my life. Those who genuinely love me and care about me and want to see me grow and mature and be my best, and I thank you that they love me enough to correct me when I need it. Jesus, I thank you that you love me enough to correct me when I need it. God, I pray that you would help me to grow in my maturity, in my willingness to allow other people to love me and correct me. I pray that you would grow me in my courage when it comes time for me to correct another fellow believer in Christ, so that as a church, we can grow deeper into maturity together.